Welcome to our special report called Sex Trafficking, The New Slavery, hosted by Chantel Sings and Freddie Bell. In the coming hour, you'll hear about the damage caused by commercial sexual exploitation, some of the causes behind it, and some ideas on how we can help end it and free those people trapped within this illegal economy. In the 10 years the National Human Trafficking Hotline has been up, it has intervened in more than 40,000 cases. The vast majority of those sex trafficking cases involving escort services, home and street-based commercial sex, and illegal massage parlors. The Internet has made commercial sex exploitation easier, more global, and more profitable than ever before. The United Nations estimates at least 5 million of women are sold for sex in an international industry that generates as much as $100 billion in profits. But traffickers are hard to catch and prosecution rates remain low. So this exploitive industry keeps growing. Violence and stigma accompany victims almost everywhere they go. That stigma keeps sex trafficking hidden in the shadows. But this hour, we're shining a light on it. We're going to talk about the ways sex trafficking hurts women and communities, and we will suggest ways you can help. Advocates in the room, service provider. We're beginning the hour at the spring 2018 meeting of the Minnesota Human Trafficking Task Force. Who's new? Who's here for the first time? There are a couple of hundred people in the room from law enforcement, nonprofit organizations, and government agencies. The task force was formed in 2017 to bring resources from all fields and all over the state together to deal with sex trafficking. Minnesota leads the nation in looking at the business of sex trafficking as a public health problem. Funding efforts help victims through the state's Department of Health. More about that later in the program. At this meeting, four months post-Super Bowl, the task force is reviewing lessons learned from its massive effort to disrupt sex traffic for a week and a half around the big game. This is Catherine Diamond with the Minnesota Department of Health. The shelter beds were filled every night for adults, um, for adult women, and especially adult women with children, and they don't exist outside of those 10 nights they were here for the Super Bowl. One comment that really has stuck with me is a youth provider said that one of the youth that she was working with said, why, why could you provide these things during the Super Bowl and now you can't do it now? And she had to say, you know, it was a it was a one time thing. We had those resources for that one event and we can't provide those things for you anymore, which is heartbreaking. The need for resources is real and growing to understand better how traffickers lure women into the life and then keep them there. We recently spoke with two survivors. When you have a trafficker, one of your roles is to pull in other women to get other money. Like, I pulled my cousins into it. I thought I was helping them get money, you know, when actually I was helping destroy a little piece of them, just like a little piece of me got destroyed on every trick I had to turn. Mine would be what you would call as a generational prostitution. My dad was a pimp. This is Tonique Eiler. Tonique is 37 and works as a housing advocate at a survivor-led nonprofit. She wanted to tell her story as a cautionary tale in case you or someone you know may be vulnerable. A warning, Tonique is speaking frankly about the brutal violence that she experienced and witnessed while she was growing up. I had three stepmoms, and that seemed normal, which it wasn't. He called them ladies of the night. I mean, I remember seeing him, I remember him punching one of my stepmoms so hard in the face she fell out in the tub. 
and he just simply shut the door and said it's out of order for a while. I had another stepmom, he poured a pot of boiling hot water and rice on her back. To this day, I could still see her body flopping to the floor in agony. And he would just simply step over and ask her if I wanted something to eat. So it was like violence and physical force was just normal. That it just seemed normal. And I loved my dad. He, he did treat me like a princess, but he unknowingly planted a seed in me on how women are to obey and to, you know, and, and, and to worship a man. And he did that by how I saw how he treated my stepmoms. You know, so when I when I did end up in the life, it just seemed more natural and it made me more vulnerable to a trafficker because that just seemed like it was normal life. You, you get the money, you give it to the man. Get the money, give it to the man. That's how it went for Tonique for almost 30 years. She traveled frequently to Vegas, accumulated felonies, lost custody of three children. Then at Stearns County Jail in 2016, someone gave her a book called Walking Prey. How America's Youth Are Vulnerable to Sex Slavery. It's about how vulnerable youth are lured into becoming what the author calls willing victims of the sex trade. The book talked about a local survivor-led nonprofit called Breaking Free. When Tony got out of jail and into treatment, she enrolled in a Breaking Free class called Sisters of Survival, SOS. She said at first she was rolling her eyes in class, but by the end, when it came time for the evaluations, she had changed her thinking. The bottom of the evals asks you a really important question, like, what does prostitution mean to you? And I just put, it was, a, it was using my body as a means to make money. That's the way as I always looked at it. And the group facilitator, Jennifer Gaines, she really got to me and she told me, no, it's violence against women, it's paid rape, it's modern day slavery. I didn't even realize that I was a victim of that lifestyle until she pointed it out to me. And I mean, it really gets you thinking, that's why. By the end of her 14-week Sisters of Survival class, Tonique had an awakening about her own story. She was angry at the trafficker and even at herself for not getting it sooner. She volunteered to help teach the class. She got off drugs, got her children back. Now, as you heard, she works for Breaking Free. She wants to show other women that it's possible to lead the life. Well, I, I think what lead by example is exactly right. And that's why we are a survivor-led organization. I am the executive director. I have three felonies. And I'll talk about it to everyone. We keep pushing. Fifteen years ago, Breaking Free helped Terry Forlitti leave prostitution, too. Now, as executive director, she helps women get off drugs, find jobs, and most of all, recover their self-worth. Now, we're not going to open up a daycare. We're not going to work at a bank. There's a lot of things we're not going to do, right? Right. But there's a lot of things we can do, and we keep pushing it. Because guess what? We don't have a ch choice, just like we didn't have a choice in the life. If you go to the Breaking Free website, on the Contact Us page, you'll see a note to reporters. It says to not use the word prostitute, hooker, or streetwalker. The correct term is prostituted woman or survivor. Those other words are labeling, insulting, re-victimizing, and do not accurately reflect the abuse and oppression we survive. The point is that when someone is exploited by someone else for money, it traps them and undermines their ability to freely choose what is best for them. It isn't a choice. Well, it's a choice, but it's a lack of choices. Like, I remember one day I walked in and my pimp was at Perkins with some other guys and they said, why don't you sign this check, Terry? Um, and I looked at it and I said, you know, I'd rather not. There's an audit trail. I'm probably going to get a felony. And they said, no problem. Here's the key to a room. These three guys over here are at the Holiday Inn. I want you to go over there, stay with them. I'll come by about 5 o'clock, pick you up. 
just be ready out back. I said, where's that pen? So instead of being with those three guys, I decided to write that check. And I did get a felony. But it was worth it to me, rather than having sex with those three men. So those are our choices. Terry and Tonique have not ever reported their traffickers. They're afraid of repercussions, and believe it or not, they have sympathy for some of the men who've abused them. Tonique says men don't have good choices either. You know, these traffickers are groomed too. Yeah, from their parents. They're groomed just like we are. It's either sell drugs, play sports, or be a musician, or sell women. Or sell women. Not far from here at KMOJ, there's a research center that puts numbers to what Tonique and Terry are describing. It's called the Robert J. Jones Urban Research and Engagement Outreach Center, or UROC. UROC's director of research used to work at a neighborhood association on the north side. That's when she started looking into the problem of sex trafficking. Now, Lauren Martin is a nationally respected researcher on the subject. She has published many studies, including one in 2014, that looked at the police records of men who've been arrested for buying or selling other people for sex. They have very similar childhoods and experiences to the people who were victims of sex trafficking. They live in the same neighborhoods as the victims. Running away from home, abuse and neglect in the home, foster care, homelessness. These are all things that many traffickers have experienced, especially if we're looking at what you might call lower-level traffickers, um, you know, that have smaller operations that are more community-based. UROC's research is unique because it flows directly from community concerns. More than that, UROC partners with the people who are most affected by those concerns. A lot of people in the neighborhoods were talking about people involved in street-based prostitution. There wasn't a lot of conversation with people involved in street-based prostitution. People who are not involved in commercial sex think they know a lot about what's happening. And if they're going to try to do interventions or policy or policing uh, based on stereotypes, assumptions, stigma, um, the, the things that they're trying to do to help the situation won't actually work. Dr. Lauren Martin learned a lot while she gained the trust of prostituted women in Minneapolis. She changed her research methods to be more respectful of their time and take into account what they needed in order to participate. Her first study was published in 2010. People involved in commercial sex are part of the community. They are doing what needs to be done to support families. You know, some people would say things like, you know, I could work at McDonald's, get paid crap wages and get bossed around by a teenager and not actually have enough money to live on or I can do this other stuff around commercial sex which I don't want to do but I need to support myself and my kids. At the same time as Dr. Martin was beginning to publish academic work, Reverend Dr. Alika Galloway and her husband Ralph were laying the foundation for a new church on the north side. Like Dr. Martin, Reverend Galloway began by listening. And the women started telling me their stories. Black women talked to other black women. And so they began to tell me these stories. I shared some of their stories with Ralph. We began to ponder what do we need to do? How do we, what's next steps for us as we're trying to build this church? Then a chance meeting that proved momentous brought these two dedicated women together. They met in 2009 at a conference on women's health. Reverend Galloway stopped to stare at one of Dr. Martin's charts. It showed that many girls enter the life as preteens. What brought me to my knees 
was that the that that the women usually started the average age of starting trading sex was eleven and a half, and I had eleven and a half year old daughter. So providentially, I was able to meet her, and what she had been doing as an academic exercise, I was doing as a pastoral exercise, and the two pieces fit. And so we began then to talk about what do we need, what do the women need. Likewise, to Lauren Martin, the question, what do women need, was a game changer. She thought it was exactly the right question. She and Reverend Galloway began to collaborate on an answer. With both of our research, what we determined was that they needed a place of rest. Because the women said to Lauren, I need a place of rest. I need a place of respite, like just some good food. I want some beauty. And I want to do like some handcrafts like I learned at my grandmother's table. And a place to just talk. Just a place to share non-judgmentally. And so that's what we provided. That's how the work started. Their partnership is still gaining steam and changing lives. The two of them and the women they work with laid the basis for a new understanding of the nature of sex trafficking and exploitation and how to help end it. You'll hear more about the fruits of their labor later in the program. Listening to Sex Trafficking, The New Slavery from KMOJ, The People's Station. This is our special documentary report on how commercial sex hurts our community and ways we can help end it. So far this hour, we've heard from survivors at Breaking Free, a nonprofit formed 22 years ago to help women leave the life of prostitution. We've also learned how a research center is working with the community to solve the sex trafficking problem by listening to women still in the life or women who have found ways to leave it. Last year, that research center, UROC, worked with the state on a report called Mapping the Demand. Lauren Martin is the director of research at UROC. She found that in a typical year, as many as 25,000 men across Minnesota paid for sex. If we think about this as a marketplace, the people who are doing the purchasing of sex, for the most part, are, according to our research, are white, middle and upper class men. They are people across the state. So researchers, law enforcement, and policymakers are increasingly focused on the demand side of the marketplace. That is, the men who buy women and girls for sex. But it also involves a culture that tolerates and actually promotes sexual exploitation. A growing number of allies, including men and men's groups, are standing together with women to end prostitution, and stop the sexual exploitation economy. For example, police are arresting buyers of sex instead of women and youth who are being sold. Just listen to Sergeant Grant Snyder, the Minneapolis cop who ran the Super Bowl crackdown. I right away up front said, we're not going to arrest women, we're not going to do it. And, And that was a strategic decision on my part in the beginning. Sergeant Snyder was speaking at the spring 2018 meeting 
of the Minnesota Human Trafficking Task Force. He says arresting victims doesn't help them. He advocates higher penalties on the Johns, those who buy sex. I, I mean, I, I think that, that placing the, the primary responsibility and primary effort on demand really pays off in dividends, especially if we're successful in raising the base level offense to a felony for buying sex. There's not a single one of those people that is, that's not going to change their life. A misdemeanor doesn't do that. Snyder and other speakers at the task force meeting said street-based prostitution is common in certain areas of Minneapolis and Duluth, but there are many other ways to sell sex. Mapping the demand, the report from Lauren Martin at UROC found that men don't like to buy sex near where they live. In greater Minnesota, they typically travel 30 to 60 miles away for transactions that last an average of 30 minutes. That means victims live all over the state, including small towns where residents may have been inclined to ignore the problem. But circumstances are forcing community members to wake up. A couple of years ago, BCA agents killed an armed suspect who had come to Alexandria, Minnesota, to buy sex from a 12-year-old girl. The shooting happened near a school where Joshua Walsing's young son went. Walsing decided to look into the issue of sex trafficking. What he found out shocked him and made him an activist. It is not girls being kidnapped and brought to other places. It is girls in our own communities and our own cities who stay here, who live here, who go to our schools and our churches and live in our own homes and who are being manipulated and forced to do a lot of this, starting with social media. Walsing wanted other people to know about the horrors of sex trafficking, so he started a group called Free Alexandria. Now he follows the issue closely by staying in touch with service providers who help victims. He told us about a 12-year-old girl who started Facebook messaging with a guy she considered a new friend. The guy asked for pictures, eventually for nude pictures. She started sharing pictures, and then this person started to blackmail her and say, well, if you don't send me something else, I'm going to tell all your friends. And if you don't do this for me, I'm going to tell your parents. And she kept being blackmailed and manipulated and exploited to the point where she was going home at the end of the day to her parents' house, into her own bedroom, and logging into a website that was controlled by somebody else and having sex shows in her bedroom on her computer and that people were paying for through PayPal uh, through a website that she didn't control. Walsing owns a martial arts studio in Alexandria. A lot of his students are young people, and he knows their self-esteem can be fragile. He wants to work with schools, churches, and parents to change the way boys talk about girls. He knows that part of the challenge is to change the way men, including men in his circle, talk about women. It's the way we talk about objects and the way we talk about women. For example, wine is something that... In, in circles, in men's circles, we talk about wine as being like blonde and a redhead. You know, we're talking about a white wine and a red wine. Often we say, well, we're going to go get some girls. We're going to get a, a blonde and a redhead at the liquor store. And we are taking those wine and we're giving it female characteristics and then objectifying it by saying we're going to go buy it. We first heard about Walsing from a Duluth-based group called Men as Peacemakers. Men as Peacemakers works with communities to get at the root cause of violence against women and children. Those causes include poverty, racism, and male dominance. 
Men as Peacemakers got the message out through a series of videos about sex trafficking. The campaign is called Don't Buy It. Here's a sample. He told me he loved me. That I'd only have to strip for a little while and we'd start a new life together. Don't buy it. Stripping and porn are harmless. It's not hurting anyone. So what's the big deal? Don't buy it. A man who bought me said, I thought we killed all you Indians. Prostitution is about power, control, and oppression. Don't buy it. The goal of the Don't Buy It campaign is to let communities, families, neighbors, and friends know what goes on in the shadows and how this exploitive economy traps people in a cycle of violence. It's all part of a relatively recent change in how sex trafficking is viewed and understood. There's one group in a unique position, literally, to perceive, observe, and report sex traffic. Over-the-road truck drivers. For many years, truck stops and rest stops were lucrative locations for sex traffickers. Truck stops tend to be isolated from communities. They have a steady stream of potential customers, and women and girls have nowhere to run. But about seven years ago, as attitudes were changing and the public became more aware of the exploitation of women and youth, many truckers decided to join the fight against sex trafficking. They formed a group called Truckers Against Trafficking. One of the most active chappers nationwide is in Minnesota. The group tasked truckers to look out for signs of commercial sex and to work with law enforcement to stop it. We were curious about how this effort was going, so producer Laurie Stern went for a ride. This is her report. Before Bob Murphy leaves the lot, he needs to tell a computer his trailer and cab are ready. And I will enter my trailer number. And I'll put done. And so we're good to go now. Okay. Then the computer tells him how long he can drive before he must take a break. You have seven hours and thirty-four minutes of remaining drive time. I've been driving truck for about 41, 42 years, so I've been doing it a very long time. I bet you've seen some changes. Uh, yes, a lot of changes. I rode along with Bob to hear about changes in sex trafficking. You, you about couldn't sleep at the truck stops, it was so bad. Gals used to come and bang on your door Every 15, 20 minutes, hour, someone would bang on your door, you know, wanting to know if you had wanted company. Bob says it's not like that anymore. Truck stops have security guards and video cameras now, and truckers have been enlisted to stop sex trafficking. A lot of the drivers now report anything in truck stops, you know, that's out of the ordinary. Drivers can take pictures, they can take videos. Bob is a proud member of Truckers Against Trafficking. His employer, Brenny Transportation, is a national leader. All Brenny's drivers get special training in what to do when they see something suspicious. They're supposed to call a hotline, which gets routed to local law enforcement. And they have wallet cards with phone numbers victims can call. So all I do is give them the card anymore. So tell them no thank you and so it still happens from time to time? From time to time, yes. 
So this is a TA truck stop in Rogers, Minnesota. So we'll stop right here and go in and use the facilities and get a cup of coffee. Truckers Against Trafficking calls drivers like Bob the eyes and ears of the highway. Human traffickers use the highways and the truck stops and motels, the whole transportation system, to move their product. Truckers Against Trafficking aims to saturate the transportation system with its materials and to call for professional drivers to act. Yet, as we see after we climb back in Bob's truck at the Rogers truck stop, it can be tricky to make that call. Well, what we're looking at is, is you know, a lady on the other side of a trailer and she's talking to a truck driver. But you see this car right out in front, this pickup. We see the pickup and a couple of trailers. Behind the first trailer, we see only legs, his and hers. We're gonna sneak through here so you can, you can see the gal down in there. I'm not sure she isn't working, you know? Yeah, no, I'm not either. No, I'm not either. Um, it's, there's no way to really know 100%. Bob says it's always a judgment call, and this time he's not going to say anything. He says the woman could be a wife or girlfriend, just visiting on the driver's break. But he's a little rattled. He didn't expect to see anything out of the ordinary at the truck stop during the day. He says more security and higher awareness has meant less activity at truck stops. And some of the girls now just they give out cards, call me, and, and they go away from the truck stops, you know. Not surprising that traffickers are trying to stay a step ahead of law enforcement. Drivers like Bob Murphy are making a difference, though. Truckers Against Trafficking says more than half a million drivers have been trained on how to help, and thousands of them have made calls to the national hotline. In 2017 alone, their actions led to more than 500 cases, nearly half of those involving minors. I'm Lori Stern. So it sounds from Lori's report like Truckers Against Trafficking is making a dent, if not a huge impact, but a dent is still a difference. And Truckers Against Trafficking is on the move. In spring 2018, it parted with the Minnesota Truckers Association and the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension with an aim to rescue more victims. The partnership will train bus drivers, clerks at truck stops, and other transportation workers about what to look for and how to spot exploitation and trafficking and what to do if they see it. A similar effort is underway in the hospitality industry. One more thing before we leave the demand side of sex trafficking. There's something called John School. That's a diversion program, an alternative to paying a fine for men convicted for the first time of buying sex. On a recent Saturday afternoon, 15 men sat around U-shaped folding tables at a rec center in St. Paul. They had agreed to spend a day being told why what they did is harmful. Running the show was Jeremiah Witt, a middle-aged white guy, like most of the Johns, who uses his own life story to persuade men to change. Jeremiah joined a gang, did drugs, beat women, had a daughter, went to prison. After he straightened out, he decided to find his little girl, who was nine when they reunited. 
but by the time she was a teenager, she had entered the life, and he was powerless to help her. Long story short, guys, I went through this for seven years with my daughter. I see my daughter beat from the top of her head to the bottom of her feet, bicycle chain bruises. I've been in shootouts over my daughter multiple times. And I used to chase her away from tricks, cars. I used to chase tricks down Stockton Boulevard seven years. I would leave work. I was working two full-time jobs. I would leave work, park my stuff on Stockton Boulevard, and I was on the track all night long. It took six months for any of the girls that were on the track, and some of them I knew, to tell me anything about my daughter. And then the pimp and prostitution culture started taking another change. It used to be, it used to be older men that had seven or eight girls and one pimp. But now it's completely backwards. It's the other way around. Now, now you have seven or eight guys pimping one girl. You got one putting them on the computer, one collecting the money, one uh, uh, setting up the track or whether they're going on the circuit. It's just a whole group of people pimping one girl. <laughs> because one girl can make $1,500 to $2,000 a night. Insane, right? Eventually, Jeremiah's daughter got safe, and now he's using his energy to work this room, this room of John's. He wants the men at John's school to feel like his daughter could be their daughters, like they have a responsibility to change. The men also hear from survivors themselves, some like Jennifer Gaines, work for the nonprofit Breaking Free. She told the men she had participated in all forms of prostitution. So stripping, street walking, back page, massage parlors, escort, you know, you name it, I was involved. Um, so today I'm going to be telling you uh, about Breaking Free. We're going to talk about sex trafficking and what it looks like. And I'll incorporate some of my story. And, um, and if there's time for questions, we'll do questions, okay? Human trafficking is the fastest growing black market crime on the planet, second only to drugs. And the reason for that is once I buy drugs and sell them, they're gone, right? If I buy some guns and then sell them, they're gone. But with a human being, I can literally sell that person over and over and over again. Some of the women that are come to Breaking Free are actually still in the lifestyle, and that's okay because we understand that it's a process to get out. You can't just wake up one day and say, I'm not gonna turn any more dates. Because let's face it, you need money to live. Women are being born into the lifestyle. So imagine where your mother is in prostitution, your father might be a trafficker, maybe your cousins are all in the stripping industry, um, your auntie might be a street walker, and your sister might be in the escort business. You are born into this lifestyle, and this is what you are taught from a very little bitty baby, that you are a commodity. And by the time you turn 12 and you get some hips, people start looking at you like, hey, it's your turn now. You need to step up to the plate. You need to make money for the family too. And that happens a lot. And it's really challenging for them women to get out of the life because they don't know any different. I know I left home when I was 14 years old. I got mad at my mom. And I left home and I ran away, went down on Hennepin Avenue where they had an arcade called the Fun Center. And I met my trafficker that night. We would work in Chicago a few months, save up enough money, and then he would traffic me to New York. And we did this pipeline back and forth because I'd get to New York and maybe I would get a beating or something would happen and I would try to leave him. Sometimes the runaway squad picked me up and flew me home. Um, 
sometimes uh, one time my nose was broken my ribs were broken my mother came to get me and uh, brought me back to Minnesota she put me back in school my trafficker came right to my school and snatched me out of school I don't know how many times my trafficker threatened to kill me threatened to kill my children a lot of times when I went out to the work and um, make money my trafficker had my children and he was uh, very physically abusive to one of my sons and you know, if I didn't make my money, the, the money that I was supposed to make that night, a lot of times my son suffered for it. That was the enslavement part. I wanted to get away and couldn't. You know, my trafficker taught me how to use knockout drops where I put things in people's drinks. I don't know if some people didn't wake up after I left. And at the time I didn't care. I just knew I didn't want to sleep with anybody if I didn't have to. If I could get away with stealing it versus giving my body up, I was going to do that. I used to get the question, what can I do to make you feel good? I want you to enjoy this experience too. And I always had to lie and smile and, and come up with something that I could actually bear. But what I really wanted to say was just hurry up. Just do what you got to do and get off of me. There's a myth of choice. How come they don't just leave? I don't know how many times people ask me that. How come you don't just get a job? Why don't you just go back to school? Don't you love your kids? When I was trying to go to school, my trafficker, anytime I tried to do something to better myself, he would keep me up all night, drilling me, interrogating me about where I had been, how much money had I really make. Maybe we would uh, go through some violence and drama that night. He'd steal my car so that I couldn't get to school. Didn't I love my kids? Yes, I loved my kids. I made a lot of decisions because I loved my kids. I was trying to take care of my kids. You know, there was times I did try to get a job. One time I got a job as a waitress in Maple Grove, but it was very short-lived. I got um, let go because I came in to work with black eyes too much and that wasn't good for customer service. One time when I got out of prison, I got a job at a nursing home, but then um, I got let go after I was working there for a little while when they found out that I had felonies on my record. And you know, I just started believing that there's no hope. You know, every time I try to get somewhere, the lifestyle knocks you back down. So if you think that prostitution is a choice, when you see the blank look on these women's faces, you should know that it's not. Nobody chooses that. You cannot choose to be exploited. Well, um, one of the things we do at Breaking Free is we have a speakers bureau where we teach the women how to tell their story and it's a healing time for the women. This is their chance to tell, get to tell you how they were feeling during the act and it's an educational piece for you guys. So who's going first? Nicole? Okay. So here's Nicole, come on up. A little bit about myself, I guess. Um, I'm a very shy person most of the time. Um, I was born to a mother who was still in high school. Um, she doesn't know who my father was, and she was addicted to crack cocaine and alcohol. I was found left alone in an apartment. From there, I was intended for foster homes.
Nicole lived in ten different foster homes before she was three. Relatives adopted her, but her life got no easier. She escaped into drugs and booze at an early age and hit the streets with friends as soon as she could. And we would hit up all the guys in the bars. And we would either get you guys to give us the money to go up to the bar, but instead of going up to the bar, we were heading out the back door with the $100 or whatever you gave us. We didn't care. Or we would get convince you guys to get us a hotel room where we would eat, drug you, rob you, or do the job and kick you out and have the hotel for ourselves for the night. Jennifer and Nicole's paths into prostitution were very different, but the pattern was the same. It's a pattern breaking free wants these men to hear about. First, traffickers recruit vulnerable women or youth who have been neglected or abused. Then they brainwash them, often using violence. And at last, they hold them captive. He promised me um, unicorns and rainbows and cotton candy and everything's going to be all peachy keen. Two weeks after we were together, I didn't make any money one night and he beat me black and blue. And I had to walk around big sunglasses, couldn't make any money. You guys didn't want to see somebody with big old raccoon eyes. You didn't want to get caught with somebody like that because they'd think it was you. Every single dime I had was going towards crack cocaine, marijuana, and alcohol. It got so bad that in 2014, when I found out that I was pregnant with my son, I had tried to quit. I tried to quit the lifestyle, I tried to quit using. And I tried to get away from my trafficker, my son's dad. And I had to ask myself, okay, so if I, if I leave, got rid of baby daddy, now what am I gonna do? So I stayed. I got my daughter taken away for drugs and abuse. I was taken away for drugs and neglect. And I was damned if I was gonna let it happen again. So October 3rd of 2016, I packed my bags and went over to Minneapolis to RS Eden, checked myself in two days later, which is when they had the bed open. And I came back to Breaking Free, did their SOS program and their Speakers Bureau. Um, and I'm glad to say that I have been clean and sober and not calling any of you guys for 18 months. Got my son back, went to another sober house where he was welcome to stay with me. And shortly after that, my Section 8 got approved. I now live out in Brooklyn Park. I have a car. I'm starting school. Um, still trying to get a job. My felonies don't really get smiled upon, no matter where you go, even Home Depot. <laughs> and uh, you know, it's very tempting to pick up the old habits again and find that phone number or come back into St. Paul and go down to the east side where I know I can make some money, but I have to remember I have a three-year-old little boy that's looking up to mommy. My son deserves more than that, and I feel that I deserve more than that now that I'm clean and sober, and I look at you guys as friends and not pieces of meat and not objects. And that's why I'm here, just to make sure that everybody knows that women and men are not objects in this. We are not to be sold. We're to be loved, cherished, and respected. Thanks. These men have been paying attention to these hard stories all day. Before they can get their official court documents saying they've finished John's school, 
They write down answers to questions about what they've learned. They write for a long time. Jeremiah says he can tell they've been moved. He hopes what they've heard today will lead to change, that these men, at last, will stop paying for sex and fueling an abusive and exploitive economy. Fancy girls on Long Beach Boulevard Flagging down all of these flashy cars Fancy girls on Long Beach Boulevard Oh, flagging down all of those flashy cars This is our special report called Sex Trafficking, The New Slavery, hosted by Chantel Sings and Freddie Bell. Those survivor stories we've just heard are hard, but important. If we don't talk about sex trafficking, the industry stays hidden and it's harder to help people in our own communities find hope and healing. In this part of the hour... We want to shine the light on some of the incredible work being done by dedicated people providing critical services out there. As you will hear, some great and helpful work is going on, including some led by survivors themselves. But first, we want to talk about Safe Harbor. If you're not a victim or a service provider, you may not know that Minnesota was one of the first states to pass a law that protects youth from being arrested or prosecuted for prostitution. That law, called Safe Harbor, first passed in 2011 and went into effect in 2014. Its programs and services are expanding every year. It's a web of resources for youth who have experienced commercial sexual exploitation. My name is Logan Toodle, and I am the Safe Harbor youth worker at the Minnesota Indian Women's Resource Center. So I work with sexually exploited youth 24 and under, specifically within the Native community. Safe Harbor generally and Logan Toodle specifically go into action when they learn of a young person who needs help. Safe Harbor divides the state into eight regions. Each region has a so-called regional navigator to coordinate trauma-informed, culturally sensitive services. The help starts with housing, but also includes help with substance abuse, child protection, legal needs, and health care. Minnesota's web of support is called No Wrong Door. That means if a young victim of sex trafficking approaches any service provider anywhere in the state, they'll be directed to the regional navigator who can help them. If they're Native and they live in Hennepin County, they will likely be directed to Logan Toodle at the Minnesota Indian Women's Resource Center. Commercial sexual exploitation in a lot of ways has been normalized in our communities because it's a means of survival. The MWIRC supports Native victims with deep understanding in ways they've been affected by historical trauma. You can't look at sexual exploitation of Native youth today in 2018 and not look at our history and fully understand the problem. You have to look back and see that sexual exploitation began when the first ships arrived in the U.S. Logan Toodle says many Native youth have had bad experiences in foster care and sometimes are reluctant to stay in shelters or stay connected with her. Yet she says there is strength and resilience in the community, too. While we have this long and troubled history with colonization, I think that if we look at culture, it can be one of the, one of the most healing things that can help youth get out of these situations. 
we also have a culture that views women and children as sacred. So I think there's so much hope in the collectiveness of our community. The fact is that communities of color are disproportionately affected by sex trafficking. These communities also face the challenges of institutional racism, generational poverty, and historical trauma. The National Human Trafficking Hotline says 80% of its sex trafficking cases in 2017 involve victims who are people of color. That's one reason many refer to sex trafficking as modern-day slavery. Terry Forleti and Tonique Eiler from Breaking Free explain. Well, for one thing, if you take a look at the posters uh, back in the 1800s when they were selling slaves, what they do? They had the description, yeah. what they look like, what they're capable of doing. Yeah, you know, now and how much they weigh, and they're strong, they're good in the kitchen, they're good in the fields. And the know, price. And their price. <laughs> You look at back page, and what does it show? It shows the picture, her description. What you she's know. good at. What, yeah. And the price. And the price. It's the same thing. Remember Reverend Alika Galloway? We introduced her at the beginning of the program. Most of the women that I had the great blessing of knowing are full of courage, but they're just trying to survive. Reverend Galloway and her husband, Ralph, have a background in community organizing. My particular expertise is in women who practice survival sex, victims of generational poverty, unsustainable housing. A few years ago, Reverend Galloway decided to do something to help women in the life. With the help from the University of Minnesota, she established the Northside Women's Space at Kwanzaa Community Church back in 2010. Same idea, same place, but now it's called the Northside Healing Space at Liberty Community Church. So, um, this is the Tuesday gathering of uh, women who are healers in need of healing. And in one way, all of us have been victims of sexual exploitation. About 10 women of all ages are sitting around tables at Liberty Community Church on 21st and Emerson in North Minneapolis. Top of today's agenda is an idea to generate revenue for women who need it. Reverend Galloway has recently visited Thistle Farms in Nashville, Tennessee. Thistle Farms' mission is to heal, empower, and employ women survivors of trafficking, prostitution, and addiction. It offers two years of housing, employment, and lots of support. The jobs come from sales of products, from bug spray to bracelets. Products that are good for women and safe for the environment. Last week we started talking about opportunities to build a business like uh, Thistle Farms. They go round the table and offer ideas. You know, particularly as we start. But it's it the first step in a collaborative process that will eventually lead to a plan. The goal is to offer bridge money to the many women who stop by the Northside Healing Space for a little help. It will do gap money. Book money, filler money, diaper money, mm -hmm. clove money, bus card money. Do I only have enough money to either get on the bus or to buy milk? Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What you going to do with that? That's, that's saying you're not going to have to make that choice today. Yeah. Many of these women have been in that position themselves, and they all know women in that situation. They spent their last, you know, 40 bucks on a nice interview outfit. Mm -hmm. They can't feed their family. and actually went back to trade. Mm -hmm just to get themselves food until they can start their first job. Yeah. yeah. You know, seen that happen a lot. Or someone that 
went back to trade just to <clears throat> get their brakes fixed on their car. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and even with that trading, that, that brought their confidence down a lot, mm-hmm. put them at risk. Even some of them went and caught cases, solicitation cases due to jumping back into this lifestyle. Because that's the mm-hmm. old behavior that you'll go back to if you, your basic needs are not met. Mm-hmm. So yeah, It's clear from the stories that pour out at the Northside Healing Space itself has had a lot of value. There was the woman who asked to take a shower and got a hug and the use of donated Calvin Klein washcloths. Another woman spent a day here rather than get solicited during an eight-hour layover at the bus station. When you're doing the absolute best you can, what will still get thrown in there. But that's what trauma-informed healing groups are for. Mm, Not so we can Mm -hmm. fix anything, but so we can be there with them as they go through. Because it's like I came in awareness of what was really happening, and I didn't block it. Mm -hmm. See, the miracle comes in, and it don't hurt anymore because you're able to talk about it. Mm-hmm. and help somebody else through it, mm-hmm. and then it becomes more empowering, then you can see God was <laughs> there for me. No matter what, I'm still mm-hmm. here. And that's why we say we are a group of healers in need of healing, because mm-hmm. all of us have stuff. I don't know a African-American female who has, is not the victim of sexual exploitation on one way or the other, because we live in a community and in a society that practices a philosophy of hypersexuality with regard to black female bodies. This is a social issue. This is not your issue as an individual. This environment is enabling this to happen. Socially, this is acceptable right now, and it's affecting you as an individual, but this is not your issue. You're not a criminal, a prostitute, a hoe, a whore all those negative words, you are a victim of an industry that has existed. The Northside Healing Space won't topple the system. At the very least, it will give people, especially women in the community, a place to rest, gather their thoughts, and connect with others. But neither are the women here working in isolation. Recent years have seen a change in attitudes about sex trafficking, a recognition that violence and exploitation are the bonds that hold it together. Break those bonds and free the victims. That's the hope. In this hour, you heard how profitable the sex trafficking industry is. Public policy can make it less so by surrounding victims with support instead of stigma. Communities can lift women out of the light so they can heal and transcend the abuse and violence that held them captive. Men can position themselves as allies and decide to make a stand, disrupt the demand. Concerned citizens can be on the lookout for people who may not be safe. Listen to the victims. Learn from the experience. Make it better instead of worse. That's something we all can do. This KMOJ special report, Sex Trafficking, The New Slavery, was made possible by funding from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and the citizens of Minnesota. Minnesota.